0: in each of us, Father. Such a, a newfound love. Such a return to a first love, God. Um, for the scriptures that you wrote for us, God. So yeah, may bless uh, with the spirit of God in this place. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, so today I kind of want to hit on the head kind of two points. Um, and these two points are first that the Bible, it's, it's alive. It's alive and it's transformative, right? That's our word. And the second thing is that God's love on display is the story of the bible and hopefully i'm going to tell a story about a guy called king josiah and hopefully using that story you'll come out and be a catalyst by which you can like grasp these truths in a new way go home and be like wow the scriptures are cool that's my hope so i'm going to jump straight in i'm going to paraphrase a bible story uh super quick um this guy king josiah he's the king of a small kingdom called judah which is a real significant place in the old testament Uh, And it's about 600-ish years before Jesus would rock up on the scene and do some really cool stuff. And um, King Josiah loved God. Like, I mean, this guy was the bee's knees of kings that loved God. And he, he, at 26 years old, said, hey, you know that temple that's dedicated to God? It's looking a bit ugly. It's a bit in disrepair. We're going to put some money together. We're going to... Uh, raise up all the carpenters and all of the other types of tradies and we're going to get them to go and fix the temple. So somewhere after this starts, he sends his messenger uh, who has a name that's said about 50 times in the Bible story and I still can't remember it so good times. And he sends him and he says, can you go and give this money? Can you go and encourage him to make sure the carpenters and all the other guys are being paid? So he goes along and he arrives at the temple and then there's this priest that jumps out and he's like, hey, I found this book. And he hands this book to this messenger. And the messenger, I don't know if he does it. It seems to imply that he does it right there. He opens this book and he starts reading it. And he's moved by it. And the Bible seems to indicate he has this, this kind of shift. And he's a bit of a bit of haste kind of gets on him. And he goes back to the king, uh, Josiah, in Jerusalem or in the palace, I guess. And he's like, hey, all those things you asked to do, done, whatever. But also, I found this book. And he gives this book to King Josiah, actually he starts reading it to King Josiah. And if I was the king and I was sitting there and I was like, yo, I told you what to do, you've done it, great. Now go on, off your pop, I'm the king. And if some guy opens a book and starts reading it to me, I would be like, please stop. But this guy, instead of that, this king, he stands there and he's like, all right, off your pop, keep reading, we'll see what happens. And he starts reading this book. And this book was called The Law. That's it. Which uh, it has another name for us today, uh, the actual Hebrew word, which was probably the word Torah which is the first five books of the Bible. And this priest clearly at some point over the last few hundred years had misplaced this book, which seems pretty important, and suddenly found it again. And they were reading it to this king who was honestly a really godly man. And this is what it says he responded. When he heard the words, he ripped his shirt, right? Ripped his shirt and he wept. And then it goes on to say he called his small group together. It's in there, paraphrase, but it's in there. He called his small group together and he's like, boys, boys, we need to seek God. Why? I've read this book, The Law, and we are far, far from it. And we all know, like, if you don't follow God, not good things are going to happen. Like, the opposite, bad things are going to happen. So he sends out this life group to start praying, to start seeking the Lord. And this prophetess, I don't know if that's the female version of prophet, but it sounds good. The prophetess comes back and she's like, Yo, we have heard from God, and this is what he's saying. And he says this. Sorry, she says this. God has seen your repentant heart. He's seen how much you love him. He's seen what's happened here. He's seen that you get it. Don't worry. The cost of your sin, the the response, the reaction that's owed, you're not going to see it. It's not going to happen. Not in your lifetime. It's going to happen, but not in your lifetime. I think a great way to start a sermon, by the way, a bit of crowd participation. So I'm going to throw out that. And I'm going to ask you guys to raise your hands if this applies to you. It applies to me. I'm going to say that first so that you're not out there like, should I, should I not? It really applies to me. Who here reads the Bible sometimes, right? And you're all in. You're like, I am like, yes, I'm going to read a chapter of the Bible this morning. I'm getting up. I'm reading it. This is going to be fantastic. You start and you're like, all in. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created, God created. I've got this. And then it's like this blur. And then next thing you know, it's like, and on the seventh day, he rested. And you close the book and you're like, great. I read a chapter. You walk away and you're like, what happened? Like, what did I miss? Can I guess say, is that just me? Or the other people in this room are like, yeah, yeah. I, I zone out reading scripture at times too. When I was 17, I became a Christian. At uh, the end of grade 12, I gave my life to God and I was like... Yeah, I love Jesus. And I was all in, like reading the scriptures heaps. And um, you, if you walked into my... I was living at a home. And if you walked into my bedroom at the time, you'd see this TV screen with the Xbox on, with this sign that says, please reconnect the Xbox controller. The Xbox sitting next to me, and my eyes like glued on scripture. And I'm just reading it. And I, honestly, I couldn't get enough. I thought it was like the most profound and beautiful thing I had ever seen. I was reading it, and I just felt God was just, just like... Only God could have written this, and then probably like a few months later, like over a period of time, I was like getting up for work one day, and I was like, "Oh, I have to get up at you know six a.m. That's cool. I'll just get up like twenty minutes early, read some scripture, pray, and we'll be good. We'll be great." So I did that. I get up twenty minutes early, read some scripture, go to work, and this is a habit. It becomes a season. And halfway through it, I think to myself, whilst I'm at work, "What did I read today? I did read the Bible." What happened? Next day, did the same thing. Got to work. And I was like, yeah, I read the Bible. Heck yeah, good, good guy me. And I'm like, maybe halfway through the day, I'm like, but, but what happened? What, What did I read? What happened? And I was kind of reading the Bible like it was a multivitamin, right? Like... Like you take this multivitamin. And it's not really about the flavor. It's kind of just about getting it down your throat. Because good things kind of happen when you take a multivitamin. And you can eat maccas for breakfast. That's what I was told. Um, And so you you just live the stream, You take the multivitamin. You go and you do your life. And it's great. Instead of seeing the scriptures as kind of like a meal. Something to be savored. Something to be tasted. Something to be enjoyed. It wasn't about what I get out of it when I'm done. But it's about... The thing itself It's about reading the word There's a guy called Erasmus He's a, um, He was in the 1500s So he'd be pretty old now But he wrote a book called The Handbook of the Christian Soldier It's a kind of cool sounding book And I've, I've heard snippets of it And it's really complicated But he has this quote in it that's like this Most Christians are superstitious Rather than pious And except for the name of Christ Hardly differ at all from superstitious pagans and I read this and I was like whoa back down son and then I realized I was like that because I was like yeah he's (laughs) correct because here's the thing superstitious pagans get a lucky rabbit foot right I don't know what they do with that rabbit foot but they get one and then they like read their star signs and then they like do other things, rub Buddha's head, I don't know half the things they do, I haven't paid attention. But they do all these things, they don't walk under ladders or under signs, they don't break mirrors. And all of this they say will give them good luck. And because they have good luck, the motorway south on the M1 when they go to work will be clear, you know, come on, that that would take a lot of luck. Or they would be like, hey, maybe I'm going to meet the person I was meant to marry today because I've got my lucky rabbit's foot and it's gonna go well. And sometimes I feel like, hey, isn't that true of Christians? Aren't we like, if I just read enough of the Bible in the morning and spend some time with God, not really about the thing itself, but just the act of doing it, I'm going to find a car park when I arrive at Rabina Town Centre and it's Christmas time. Yeah, I'm going to get a divine revelation or two this week and it's going to be a good time and my emotional and mental health is going to be here. Why? Because I read a bit of a book and I prayed a little bit and we kind of have this sense that it's like, we're like wearing our lucky rabbit's feet and that's it and what a contrast that is to King Josiah because this is King Josiah who is a king might I add so he probably had quite a lot of pride just a judgment but probably true and wow he was emotionally moved by the scriptures as he read them like in front of this entire hall of people probably he tears his clothes like okay and then he starts weeping like I come to church sometimes and I feel like God's stirring and I feel like a tear might come. And I think to myself, oh no, these people are watching. Hold back, David. Be strong. And it's like, this is the king of a nation and he weeps. So what's the difference? Why is it that we go through those seasons of like, I just read the scripture for the sake of reading the scripture. And then there's like this guy who can read the Bible and weep. It says in... um. Chronicle, Second Chronicles 34, 1 and 7 introduces Josiah. I'm going to power read it and emphasize the verse I want to bring out because there's a lot of words in this. Um, uh, first one, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and he walked in the ways of his father, David. David wasn't his father, but it was the same line and so they called him his father. So they walked in the same way of his father, David, good king. And he did not turn aside, not to the left, nor to the right. In his eighth year, so he'd be 16 years old, whilst he was still a youth, he began to seek God and his father, uh, the God of his father, David. And in the twelfth year, sorry, my eyes are fantastic. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. And then he says a whole heap of words, not sure what half of them mean, going to try and say them anyway. The Asherim. The carved images, the molten images, they tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars that were high above them, he chopped down. Also the asherim, the carved images, the molten images, he broke them in pieces, that was enough. Then he ground them to powder, that's still not enough. Then he scattered them on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Okay, then he burned the bones of the priests on the altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon and as far as Naphtali in their surrounding ruins. He also tore down the altars and beat the ashram and the carved images into powder, chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel and then he returned to Jerusalem. This guy was hardcore. Like, by God, that guy was like into destroying altars. But here's the thing, why? Because he was a devout king. He loved God. He really loved God. In fact, I'm going to make a bit of a contrast, but don't misunderstand it. Every single king in Chronicles, right? Or queen. Every single king, queen in Chronicles, right? They come to the end of their life, and not every one of them, but a whole heap of them have this kind of comment made at the end of their life. And this comment looks something like this. You forgot to follow God. Not a good job. Or you followed God, but you didn't tear down the temples in the high places. Did an okay job, but not a great job. 20 years old, this guy has nailed both. Why? Not because he wanted to be better than all the other kings, but because he knew that to seek and to follow God meant doing certain things and living in a certain way. And so he did that. And for him, it wasn't moralism, but he had kind of nailed what it meant to be a good, godly, Jewish king. And then at 26 years old, he looks out on his land and he says, Oh, there is a temple in the middle of my city in disrepair. It's been like this for like 200-ish years and it needs help. So he gets, like I said before, he gets all his money and he pulls it together and he starts getting it fixed. 16 years old, he starts seeking God. 20, he starts tearing down the idols. 26, he rebuilds this temple. Just saying it again, I'm just trying to, you know, emphasize it. 16 years old, he's like, I love God. 20 years old, he's like, Wait, if I love God, I should probably stop everyone from loving other gods. 26 years old, he's like, hey, if I love God and I'm stopping everyone from loving other gods, maybe I should make my God's temple the temple. Why am I emphasizing this? Because this was a good king. And after some time after this King Josiah begins rebuilding the temple, the priest finds an old dusty book. He gives it to the king via a messenger. And, the, and Josiah, the king, reads God's words written in this book. And how does he react? Like he just lost his mother. He mourns. Tears his clothes. He weeps. It says in verse 8, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, that's his name, Shaphan. He says to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan who read it. Then Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read from the book in the presence of the king. Verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. And then he gave these orders to a whole group of people, not going to try and pronounce their names, just a group of godly people. And he says, hey, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not disple- uh, obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. What could lead a king to more? It was his care for godliness that explains His weeping. Josiah understood that the Bible is alive and transformative. That's important. Why? Because if he understood the Bible was alive and transformative, when he read it, it would have an effect on him. It would take life inside of him. And it led him to view and understand his kingdom and the world around him in a whole different way. Josiah acted like something had died because he knew that in any way we stray from God, death invariably follows. What do I mean by that? A simple illustration. For a minute, I'll be God. Everything of me is godly. What does that mean? It's good. It's living. It's life. It's beautiful. It's love. Now I'm a Jewish man. Oh, any man actually, anyone. And I've just stepped out of that. If you step out of good and godliness and love, what's left? The absence of it. So the opposite of like life is death. The opposite of good is bad. And that's all that left for people who step out of that kind of place with God. Josiah knew that. And he was like whoa. We've been in a dark and a bad place. And we need to get back. And we need to find God who will help us get there. In um, 2 Timothy 3.16-17. There is the iconic verse. For anyone who's ever going to preach about the Bible. And this is like. The, like I feel like everybody knows off the to top of their head almost. Um, but all scripture is God breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting. And training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture has a living effect on its reader, it's alive. It does something in the hearts of those who read it. Why? Well, first of all, the guy who wrote it, the Holy Spirit, lives in every single Christian that reads it. Now, I'm reading a book at the moment. Um, by a guy called Blaise Pascal. He's a genius, he invented the first mechanical calculator, the first public transport in France, he advanced the fields of maths and physics, he, he advanced the fields of literature. Smart guy, right? Reading his book, I am thoroughly confused. I'm like, this bit says this, this bit says this, and I'm like, these don't even link up, what the heck? And I'm like, if Blaise Pascal was sitting right there and he could start translating to me what he meant, I would be like, please sit there and translate to me what you, what you mean, be involved in my reading. So now we have the books of the word of the omniscient which means all knowing God and he is written this book that is like perfect, right? And we got the Holy Spirit living inside of us and we're like, Shh, Holy Spirit, I'm trying to read. Stop talking. And you're like, stop. And then you just power through and you close it and you're done. And it's like, wait a minute. And you walk away and you're like, I didn't get that, huh? And the Holy Spirit, I can only imagine, like I can't really speak for him but I can imagine he's inside like, Floating like spirits do. I don't know how they do. But just like that face palm uh, meme emoji. Like, oh my goodness. Um, and so, Josiah got something about scripture. Thing Josiah got that scripture was living. And as we read. No, I don't mean like flip through. I mean as we eat. Digest, mull over, savor the flavor of scripture. It has an effect in us that trends Hey, do we understand today that the Bible is alive and transformative for us just like it was for Josiah? Like, do we get that? Like, are we a room of people that believe that the Bible is alive to us as we read it? It's a beautiful book. It has the power to change our lives, to bring joy, peace, and purpose. Even in the midst of suffering and pain, even when horrible things are happening, and even when our inner turmoil is like, Man, like anxiety, depression a lot. And it's like, wow, this is a rough season. The Bible and the Holy Spirit and God have this powerful, powerful way of carving through the brokenness inside of us. And bringing joy, even though circumstances haven't changed. And here's the thing, the love story actually didn't end with mourning. At this point in the Bible, right, we got this King Josiah and he's mourning. And anybody who's like me would be like, I don't like mourning. I don't want to read the Bible. Because you're like, well, he read the Bible and he mourned. And so, you know, if I was in this room and I was listening, I would be like, you haven't sold this to me. And <laughs> fair, fair. But here's the thing, the story didn't end with mourning. It ended with a display of God's love. And that's because the story is of the Bible is a display of God's love for the world to see. And it says, in, and I'll show it through verse 14 to the end. It says, Hilkiah the priest, that small group of people went to speak to the prophet Holder, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikiah, the son of, oh man, ha keeper of the wardrobe, which I assume meant she had really great fashion. She lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter, and she said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, tell the man who sent you to me, that this is what the Lord says: I am going to bring disaster on the place and its people, according to everything I wrote in that book, because that book's true. Because they have forsaken me, and they have burned insolence to other gods. They have aroused my anger by all of the idols their hands have made, and my anger is going to burn against this place, and it can't be quenched. But tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, right, that this is what I have to say to him, right? Because your heart was responsive. And you humbled yourselves before the Lord when you heard what I had spoken against this place excuse me, and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and then you wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace and your eyes won't see the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. Why is God bringing a disaster? Because the entire group of people said, nah, we know you God, but we don't want know." And they stepped out of God's goodness into what was the absence of God's goodness. And there was suffering. And Timothy Keller puts it like this in his book, The Reason for God. He says, imagine your... well, actually, this is a colorful paraphrase. He said something else. And then I thought, hey, that's a cool story, but I can't take credit for it. So my version of this story is this. Uh, imagine your neighbor is coming home from work one day. He's a bit of a douche. You don't really like him. But you're a Christian, so you do that thing that Christians say is love, but it's really just tolerating. Like, you don't openly curse him. but You do kind of roll your eyes when he walks by. And you know that he's the kind of guy that if you even looked at his his grass funny, he would tell you about it. And so we have this this guy, your next-door neighbor. You're not the biggest fan. And he's coming home from work one day. He's on his phone, quite animated, not really paying attention. Big SUV. He goes to reverse park, royally screws it like oof he lands in your front lawn smashes your fence ruins your grass and picks up your freshly um, planted birds of paradise right you're sitting in your lawn you're like what the and then he like gets out of his car looks left and right kind of notices you doesn't care shrugs his shoulders leaves his car there strolls in back into his house and that's the end of that and you're kind of sitting there like what the heck do I do and so you go through your options in your head you're like well I kind of have three I can leave it but whatever, I can, number two is I can um, pay for it myself, or number three is I can get him to pay for it. You sit there for a little while longer. You think through these options a little while longer. You say, huh, if I leave it, well then uh, Body Corporate, you know, those bunch of prudes, they're gonna come and tell me off. And I'm going to get in trouble and they're going to make my lease harder to get. And, you know, I'm going to have to probably pay fines or can't leave it. It's going to make matters worse. Second option, I can pay for it. Oh, but here's the problem with that one. If I pay for it, I can't pay for other things. So that's going to cost me something. I can't do that. So you think your third option, well, you know, I'm going to go next door. Yeah, I'm going to call my cousin Louis and we're going to go next door. And we're going to knock on his door. And we're going to power play him. And he's going to pay for this. And you start thinking this option through. And you know, you know how it gets, right? When you start thinking about doing bad things. And you get really excited. Because you know you would never really do them. And then you're like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And so you start thinking this option through. And you're like, I'm going next door. I'm going to do it. But then something hits you. You're like, wait a minute. If I go next door with my cousin Louis. And we make him pay for my grass. How am I going to do that? Either I insult him. I try and be stronger than him and humiliate him. I damage his grass. But in any and every circumstance of power playing, I break something more. I break something more than the lawn and the grass that is and the gate that is already broken. And Timothy Keller describes this as the problem that we face as people and what we face as Christians. And he says, hey, this is the thing, right? Every instance of us being hurt and trying to get the other person to fix it has resulted in more brokenness that's far bigger than a lawn and a gate and it keeps going and going and going. King Josiah understood that a cosmic fence had been broken an eternal lawn had been damaged. He knew it was himself and his people and the ancestors that had crashed their metaphorical car without care or concern into this lawn and it left him distraught. But God... And that's where it turns, right? But God, the best two words in the entire scripture, right? But God. Because you see, God saw Josiah and he said, huh, you're sitting next door and you know you can't pay for this. Come on over, I'll make you tea. Don't, I've got this, come on over, come into my house. I'm going to make you tea. And it'd be my tea, you don't have to pay for the tea, I got this. And God does this hospitality, this act of love. And King Josiah's like, but I have sinned, my people have sinned. And he's like, no, you see that, you get it. You ain't never gonna experience the consequence, the cost of your sin. How good is God? Like, honestly, we say that as a saying, but how good is he? Like, it's phenomenal. When we read it again, we see that the story of Josiah, Josiah is actually just a small part of this story, right? He's a small part of a really big story all about God. When we read the conclusion here and how God is so gracious that he spares King Josiah from experiencing the effect of sin has, we're like, wait a minute. Josiah isn't the big, strong one. He's the biggest screw-up as all of us in this room. He just had a nice gold crown, I mean, crown thing. And we're like, oh, so who was the superhero? It was God, the only one who could afford to pay for what was broken. And as we read the Bible, we see a God teeming with mercy, forgiveness, and kindness. He's the one who's willing to meet people, build deep and wonderful relationships with them, meet their needs physically, meet our needs physically, spiritually, emotionally, and so on. Because he is the completion he designed us to need. Maybe if we're in mourning here, maybe if we're struggling struggling in life here, hey, maybe the story actually hasn't ended. Maybe God's love is going to be displayed here and in this room through praise reports and testimonies that happen uh, you know, throughout the service. Because here's the thing. God's love on display, on display is the story of the Bible. And the Bible didn't end at Acts. It was kind of like this dot, dot, dot. Then there's Revelation. And everything that happens from dot, dot, dot to Revelation, we're part of that. We're a part of that story of the Bible, and God's love on display is the story of the Bible. Here's the thing I'm going to wrap up with this. We see the grandeur of Scripture, it's alive, it's transformative, it has power, it takes a hold of people who read it, and it changes things. We see that it's not really about any one person in the Bible, but it's a story about God, the main character. And then we see this thing, this heaven on earth moment, the crux of the story where it all kind of comes and melts into one beautiful thing. And it's like every other part and aspect of scripture points towards this. A man who is God, who comes to the earth, right? And, and we see the story of Josiah spread over the entire Bible. Humanity who sees their gaps, sees their schisms, sees their brokenness and says, I could never cross that. And half the time, I don't even want to. We see God reaching out his arms saying, I love you. I want to help you. I'm protecting you from this brokenness. And we see uh, we, we see humanity say, eh, no. And God's like, you don't get it. And we see this moment where it culminates in this man, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. And he is the greatness that man could never reach. And he comes and he dies and he suffers so that we don't have to. And we suddenly get this thing about the Bible. Every verse and every part is breathing with Jesus. It's breathing with Jesus because it it is every part of it points to him. If you're reading the Old Testament, there is not a single part of it from the moment humanity falls and God says, hey, hey, I'm cursing you, but in the middle of this, I'm going to pause to say you, there will be someone who's coming, who's going to crush the head of the serpent, right? All the way to like the prophets, to history, we see stories of Jesus the whole way through. And that is the beauty of scripture. So maybe you're in this season. Maybe you're actually like me sometimes and you're in that season where it's kind of like, I don't know. I don't really care. I don't have a lot of time. I'm reading the scriptures because I know I'm meant to. So I'm flipping through them. Maybe you're in a season where you're like, I actually just don't get the Bible. I'm reading it, but it's kind of going over my head. Or maybe you're in a season where you're actually apathetic. Maybe you're just in a season where you're like, I actually just don't care. I don't even know if I believe in this. I want to encourage you over the next uh, year this church is going through a bible study the whole new testament and i don't know if you're allowed to say this but new testament is definitely my favorite testament of the two and uh (laughs) but it's this brilliant brilliant story after story of jesus and what that means for us and if you're in one of those seasons can i say this don't just read don't just keep up don't just it's anyone here use the version Bible? Don't just keep your streak going. Like, back away from the, I'm going to meet my religious requirements. And go into, I'm going to meet the living God who dwells within every scripture. I'm going to find the Holy Spirit who lives within me. And I'm going to be like, help me. Help me read. Spend time. Not over chapters, right? But over sentences, over paragraphs, over words. And I'm going to encourage one more thing. I'm going to say this. If you don't get it, if you're reading it and you're like, I am confused, start a conversation with someone else in this church. Go out for coffee with them. Say, hey, did you get today's reading? No. Did you? No. Let's talk about it. Great. And then by the end of it, you either both don't get it or one of you might have something. And then if you really know it's confusing, you can go to Ralph and Ralph will answer every question you have. He told me to say that. Um, So... Yeah. But no, seriously, I, I do want to encourage it. Take the time to eat Scripture. Not just to pop it like a pill, stroke it like it's Buddha's head and hope it makes you lucky. Eat it like it's, like it's a meal and you've been waiting for it for days. Hey, can we pray together? Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you took the time to write Scripture. 1,500 years to write Scripture. I thank you, God, that you used 40 unique people plus 40 plus unique people to write these scriptures, God. I thank you, God, that you didn't make it about one culture, but you used six different cultures and six different empires that happened over the span of the Bible's writing, God. That you wrote a, a Bible written by people, inspired by you. God, and when and, and we talk about, I don't have the time. I thank you, God, that your grace and your mercy covers us and we have like silly blindness about your scripture and about what this time actually is. But I thank you, Father, that you gave us every minute we have and we do have the time to stop and just read and just eat of what you have to say. God, I thank you that your spirit flows through each of us. I pray, God, if we don't believe that today, that we would believe that today. God, I pray that if there is something in our hearts that's like, man... I don't think the scripture's for me. I try and read it, don't get it. I don't relate to it. God, there will be an awakening of the spirit of God within the people in this room, God, and they will come alive with a love of scripture that they are like looking at it from a bird's eye view and they're like, what the heck is going on, God? I can only worship. God, I thank you, Father, for this day. I thank you that those prayers from earlier, God, you are working and you are moving in, God. And I pray, Lord, that we would have such a passionate, overwhelming love of Scripture unlike we've ever had before. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys.